1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Bright, Dr. James Quak about their new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice Race, Poverty, and Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal
2: Courts. Stephen Bright, James Quok, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I've listened to many New Books Network podcasts, so it's fun to be on to- it.
1: Oh, wonderful. We're we're very happy to have both of you on. Uh, so I wonder if we could start just with you two,
0: um, just telling us a little bit about yourselves. Well, sure. I'll start. Steve Bright, I uh, practiced law for over 40 years, most of it with the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, most of it representing people facing the death penalty. Uh, I represented people at trials uh, in a number of states, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, I argued a number of cases uh, representing people in the appellate and post-conviction review process. Uh, Some of those cases made their way to the Supreme Court. Uh, At some point, 1993, I started teaching at Yale Law School, and I still teach there, as well as at Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C. So
2: this is James. uh, I've done a lot of things. I got a Ph.D. in history a long time ago. I spent some time in the business world. In 2008, I started going to Yale Law School. I was in Steve's Capital Punishment class. I also worked in the Capital Punishment Clinic that Steve oversaw at the time. After law school, I became a law professor at the University of Connecticut. I taught there for about uh, 10 years, and uh, along the way, I've written a number of books. I've also stayed in touch with Steve. I became a board member of the Southern Center for Human Rights. Uh, A decade ago, I was in chair for a little while. And I'm still on the board of the Southern Center. So that's me.
1: Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Um, so, how did you both come to this project?
0: Well, I think the start of the project was really bearing witness to a lot of what we saw at the Southern Center for Human Rights over the years. Uh, I have ripped off some articles, the first one in 1993 uh, called Counsel for the Poor, the Death Penalty Not for the Worst Crime, but for the Worst Lawyer. Uh, which sort of reflected all the poor quality of representation which people accused of crimes were getting in death penalty cases, but all kind of other cases as well. Uh, later, uh, an article about elected judges and the fact that judges are often more responsive uh, to the next election than to what the law and the Constitution demand, particularly in high-profile cases like death penalty cases. Uh, and so what we have done with the book has tried to uh, start with that base of knowledge and then expand out and uh, describe it uh, in terms of what we are seeing, uh, in terms of race discrimination, in terms of the poor quality of uh, representation that poor people accused of crimes uh, receive, uh, other issues, the way mentally ill people are treated in the system, uh, fines and fees, uh, all of those things, which we outline, or excuse me, which we discuss in the book.
2: Yeah, as, you know, as Steve mentioned, he started, in a sense, Steve started working on this book in the early nineteen nineties with those articles that he that he wrote at the time. Uh, I joined the process um, considerably later. Um, you know, in in my time at law school, in my time uh, in my summers, in my time working with the Southern Center for Human Rights, I, you know, seen uh, secondhand, um, sometimes firsthand many of the the issues that Steve has talked about. we've also you know expanded the, the scope of the book to talk about some issues that you know the Southern Center has been working on for a while but that have come to the public consciousness more recently such as the problem of fines and fees, criminalization of poverty, excessive excessive sentencing, and so on. So I think together you know we've, we've put together a book that discusses many of the structural failings in the criminal legal system. And, you know, as the subtitle indicates, with a particular emphasis on the impacts of race and of poverty on creating unequal outcomes in the courts.
1: Absolutely. And before we sort of get into the book, I'd like to ask both, both of you, what was the process of co-writing this book like?
0: Well, it was a process that uh, I employed in writing briefs and uh, other things, which basically is, uh, we just would pass the drafts back and forth, or at least it's my perspective on it, uh, would pass our drafts back and forth. And Each point out uh, ways to improve it and better state it. To get other examples, to provide a better historical backdrop. I mean, whatever we felt was necessary. be sort of chapter by chapter, uh, but it was very much a team effort of basically uh, working and revising and hopefully improving. uh, Also, at times uh, trying to make it more concise than 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 our original drafts and my original drafts uh, were. Uh, so it was a very, very uh, good uh, collaborative effort in my view. Yeah,
2: I'll say it was a lot of fun. I think that um, one of the, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ideas, I think, we knew going in, right? I mean, we knew that prosecutors have too much discretion. We knew that the way right to counsel is is not enforced, is not meaningful for many poor people. Um, a lot of what we had to deal with was, you know, and the last thing I'll say is we had a tremendous number of examples. Um, you know, because of Steve's work, because of the work of the Southern Center, because of the you know media coverage, there's so many any any case we talk about in the book, you could find a dozen more, a dozen more like that. Uh, you know, Steve mentioned making it more concise. We I'll, I'll give you one inside baseball comment. We submitted a draft to the editor that she said was much too long. And we, we got the word count down by almost a third. Uh, and I say, and that was largely taking out the fourth example, the third of the fourth example, when two or three would suffice. So I think we did it when that, uh, taking out very little of the kind of substantive content of the book. So the, the main title of this book, obviously, is The Fear of Too Much Justice.
1: So where does this phrase sort of originate from, and where, what role does it play in the larger sort of work that you all created here?
0: Well, it comes from a Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court was presented with the most sophisticated study of sentencing uh, that's ever been conducted, uh, which was looking at the way in which the death penalty has been imposed in Georgia over a fairly substantial period of time. Uh, and what the study revealed was the influence of race. Uh, that prosecutors are more likely to seek the death penalty and obtain it in cases where the victim is white as opposed to black, uh, that the prosecutors are more likely to uh, uh, seek death against black defendants. And that when you have that combination of a white victim and a black defendant, which was the case in Warren McCluskey's case, the one that made its way to the Supreme Court, the, the, the likelihood of death is much greater uh, than with any other racial combination. And the Supreme Court uh, heard argument in the case, received the briefs, Uh, it was a very close decision, five to four, Uh, the majority opinion uh, by Justice Powell said, we can't deal with race disparities in the infliction of the death penalty, uh, because if we did, that would open us up to having to look at race disparities with regard to all other kinds of sentencing. Uh, This wasn't the first time Justice Powell had said this. He had previously, with regard to the death penalty, and and issues of race discrimination said, well, there's race discrimination in every kind of sentencing, so why is the death penalty different? Of course, some people would say the death penalty is different than any other kind of sentencing. Uh, But Justice Brennan, in his dissenting opinion, said uh, this fear of having to look into other kinds of discrimination was a fear of too much justice. Uh, Powell also suggested maybe we wouldn't not only look at other kind of sentencing, but maybe other kind of factors that resulted in people getting the death penalty. Uh, we'd have to look into those. Of course, our answer to that is that's what the courts are there for. Uh, if race is an issue, if race is a factor, an improper factor that one person's getting the death penalty and another person isn't, and the difference is race, uh, the courts ought to do something about that. Uh, but what we find is that if you look at a lot of other areas of the law, uh, the fear of too much justice uh, seems to uh, keep us from really doing what's necessary to provide a full measure of justice uh, to people. Uh, if we really provided people with public defenders who had the resources and the caseloads and to provide zealous representation, some people think that's a fear of too much justice, that people would will, people will be acquitted uh, who are now uh, being convicted. Uh, All the way through this, we see this sort of hesitancy uh, on the part of the courts uh, to do what's necessary uh, to provide uh, justice in many different contexts. And can you uh, both sort of
1: explain explain how uh, racial prejudice sort of persists in jury selection despite Supreme Court rulings on the matter and what sort of effect this has upon those that are standing trial?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the constant themes through the book, unfortunately, is that racism and racial discrimination play a major role in the criminal legal system at many points? You mentioned jury discrimination, which is one of the most uh, salient. Um, you know, there's a long tradition, particularly in the South, of trying tr- a black defendants in front of all white juries. This goes back, you know, a very long time. Um, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was quite easy because uh, blacks were ex- excluded. They were excluded upstream. They were not on the voter rolls. They were not in the in the um, lists of potential jurors. And if you look at the the history and the laws through most of the 20th century, up until around the 1960s and 70s, the way jury pools were composed made it easy to exclude uh, most blacks. Um, you know, after the civil rights movements uh, and and some changes in in statutes, now for the most part we use we often use uh, voter rolls and and drivers driving records to determine who's of the potential pool. Those are still somewhat slanted against poor people and poor people of color, but not tremendously. So the major weapon and now um, there are multiple tactics prosecutors can use. The major weapon is the peremptory strike. Right. So in in just about everywhere, uh, both the prosecutor and the defense attorney can eliminate a certain number of people from the jury pool for for any reason, for no reason, uh, without without uh, I mean, to explain themselves, well, except in a very small way to the judge. So, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court basically said it was okay to strike people uh, because of their race. Uh, this this became uh, especially after the resumption of the death penalty. This became a more and more uh, obvious injustice because of the number of black defendants who were being convicted and particularly sentenced to death by all white juries. And so in 1986, the Supreme Court said, you may no longer strike a, a potential juror on the basis of race. And I think this is a, you know, this is a telling example of a couple of key themes of the book because, uh, the Supreme Court stated uh, this principle, which on its face should, should solve the problem. Or go take go a long way towards solving the problem. But at the same time, it established a legal test that basically does not does not result in the desired article. So what I mean by that is the test is that if a prosecutor strikes, say a prosecutor strikes a black potential juror, and a defense attorney objects and says, Your Honor, I think that, that strike was made on the basis of race, the prosecutor then has the opportunity to cite a race neutral reason for the strike. And Supreme Court over the years has allowed a, a vast number of race neutral reasons, such as whether or not the defendant had facial hair, had long hair, didn't make eye contact, looked sullen, um, and so on. And so what's happened now is that prosecutors uh, are trained with lists of reasons of race neutral, facially race neutral reasons for striking jurors, and when they want to strike a juror on the basis of race, they just state a race reason. The reason is almost always accepted by the judge. And so we have an example of a legal principle, which sounds good in the abstract, but that the Supreme Court has essentially uh, failed in upholding. And so you still see, um, again, particularly in the South, many juries that are uh, Even in in communities that have large numbers of people of color, you still see all white juries.
0: And I would just add this. I mean, when you think about it, this is not going to work to begin with because the prosecutor strikes all the blacks and then gives reasons. And the judge is supposed to divine uh, whether the reason is a race neutral reason, that's the true reason or whether the real reason is race. Now, how would the judge possibly know? Uh, There's no way to know that. Uh, but then you add the psychological factor. Uh, the judge deals with this prosecutor all the time. Uh, the judge may have been a prosecutor at one time. Now he's a judge. His chief assistant is now the prosecutor. So he know how the game is played. He used to strike all the blacks when he was picking juries. Uh, so psychologically, uh, it's just very unlikely uh, that the judge is going to find that the reason given is a, a pretext and the real reason is race. So- It's not going to work to begin with, but then, as James points out, if you've got a list of reasons and the reasons have already been upheld by the courts in past cases, well, it just makes a farce uh, of the whole thing. And one thing that I think is so disturbing in terms of legitimacy and the credibility of the courts is that when you have these hearings and everybody knows what's going on, we're striking all the blacks to get an all-white jury. Uh, And yet there's this pretense that the people are struck for other reasons. Uh, and it really does undermine credibility and, and uh, legitimacy of, of uh, the, the case and, and the way in which cases are tried in the criminal courts. And so
1: we've, we've talked a little bit about prosecutors here. So you devote an entire chapter sort of to the power the prosecutors have in this book. And it's a wonderful, very eye opening chapter. Um, but I wonder if you could expand upon this. So what sort of power... Do prosecutors have? Where does this power come from,
2: and how does this sort of negatively affect those that are caught in the criminal legal system? Yeah, so the prosecutor is the most important person in the court system, in the criminal uh, legal system. One might think it would be the judge, if you thought that you would be wrong. It's definitely the prosecutor, and a lot of the prosecutor's power comes from his—I'll say his—because most of them are men—his power over over charging decisions. And I'll just explain this in two contexts. So one is the death penalty, right? So whether uh, many states have the death penalty on their books, yet the vast majority of prosecutors never seek the death penalty, or if they seek it, they only seek it as a tool in order to get a plea bargain, which is what I'm about to talk about. Um, But the the decision whether or not to seek the death penalty uh, comes down virtually all the time to the district attorney, who in most states is elected. And um, there's about 70 percent white men uh, in this country. <laughs> and so, one thing about the death penalty today is that there are uh, there are just not that many death sentences anymore, which is obviously a very good thing. Uh, in the late nineteen nineties, we were up to about three hundred death sentences a year. Now we're around thirty or forty a year. And you know, I think it was Justice Breyer, definitely one of the recent Supreme Court justices, said. You know, if if you looked at if you looked at the death the death cases that come to the Supreme Court and compared them to other murders, you could not tell which ones. Uh, you you could not tell on the basis of the facts of the case which ones resulted in death sentences, and that's because the the decision to seek the death sentences is, is uh is highly arbitrary and is, is up to the prosecutor. So one extreme of the system, essentially, who could be executed for the crimes, is up to the prosecutor. The other example I give is at the other end of the spectrum, when you're dealing with relatively uh minor offenses that could be punished by several months of jail time, um, maybe a year of jail time. Uh, in these cases, um many people so the first issue is whether or not uh you have to you have to post bail to get out of jail. Because many people uh who can't afford bail sit in jail awaiting trial and you know, the prosecutor comes to I and mean, the prosecutor says you know based on the on what you did or what i'm i'm alleging you did i could charge you with x y and z and you would get 12 years in prison or i could charge you with just x or i could charge you with w i could charge you under a different statute and you would get to, you would get 3 months which you've already served and 2 years of probation and in that in that context the i don't know the vast majority of defendants will will take the plea deal will plead guilty in in exchange for the reduced uh, sentence, and so this is an example where the prosecutor is literally dictating the sentence because when they show up before the judge, the judge is just going to rubber stamp the deal. Um, so we have this idea that you know people do certain things, and based on the badness of those things, they they get a sentence. So there's a sentencing range, and that a judge who's somewhat neutral um, determines the sentence. But in fact, the prosecutor is the one who decides what you actually did and based on that, and because of that, he gets to determine the sentence.
0: And I just add to that, that's also where we see a lot of racial disparities in sentencing, because the prosecutor decides totally whether to charge, what to charge, when to charge, uh, whether to cut a deal with somebody who will then testify and say the defendant admitted to him that he committed the crime, notoriously unreliable testimony, but it's used all the time uh, in cases. Uh, And as James points out, the severity of the sentence, the prosecutor decides whether to seek the death poly, whether not to, whether to seek an enhanced punishment, uh, recidivist papers, uh, life in prison, mandatory 20 years, mandatory 30 years. And and what we see is that very often those more severe punishments uh, are pursued in the cases of people of color uh, than in the cases of white people. And so- the opposite of that,
1: um, you all talk right in this book uh, quite a bit about sort of the low standard of representation that exists uh, for those that are standing trial. Um, and can you speak and sort of, can you expand a little bit more on this sort of inadequate representation that exists within criminal cases and, again, how that sort of affects people that are standing trial?
0: Sure. I, I think that one of the, the the most fundamental things, if you're going to have a fair trial, uh, is that the person accused of a crime has to be adequately represented. It's an adversary system, and if it's an adversary system it's going to work, the sides have to be relatively equally balanced in terms of resources and all that. Uh, We don't have that. Uh, We have an all-powerful prosecutor uh, who, as we just talked about, decides everything, what to charge, whether to seek the death penalty, all sorts of things like that. And unfortunately, in many places, not everywhere, but in many places, uh, poor people accused of crimes uh received totally inadequate legal representation uh at the low level where people like the cases james talked about before where the person's told you know, we'll let you plead do what you're uh, the time you served, uh minor crimes people will be arrested of course that's the vast majority of cases coming in the system people charged with misdemeanors all kinds drug charges shoplifting things like that uh locked up come before a court Uh, You'll see this whole room full of people and lawyer will spend, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes with each person. uh, And then everybody pleads guilty. And those people haven't had any legal representation uh, to speak of. The lawyers never really conducted a meaningful uh, interview. There's no legal research has gone on. No uh, work has been done on determining the strength of the prosecution's case. Uh, It's basically meet them and plead them. Uh, and the defendant has an interest in that, or the person accused has an interest in that because they get out, as James talked about. Uh, The problem is they're going to be put on probation with a whole bunch of conditions uh, that they probably can't meet, which means they're going to be back in court, and they're going to be locked up. Uh, Many of them will will have fines and fees uh, that are imposed, Uh, and they can't pay those fines and fees because they don't have any income. Uh, and they're, they're told, well, you can pay on the installment plan. You can pay so much a month. Uh, but if you do that, then you'll be put on private probation, and you have an additional fee of 40 bucks a month that you have to pay the private probation officer. So whatever that fine is and those fees are, they're just going to get more and more and more as time goes by. And very often that person's going to be back before the court, and they're going to be put in jail because they didn't pay their fines or they didn't meet some other condition of probation. Uh, there are certainly places, as we talk about in the book, where people accused of crimes receive very good representation. There's some states where that happens. It certainly happens at the District of Columbia, the public defender there. Uh, but unfortunately, in many places, and I'm, I'm sorry to say most, uh, the public defenders are just so under-resourced. Uh, they have so many cases and they don't have the investigators, the paralegals, the other people that are needed uh to give people uh, meaningful representation and to make the trial uh, really a, a meaningful adversarial uh, testing process. And the most you know critical evidence we have of that uh, is that the courts very often don't even get straight. The most fundamental question they're asked which is who's guilty and who's innocent. We keep finding all these innocent people, many of whom've been in prison for 20 or 30 years. Uh, And of course, that's a real indictment of the system because, at the very least, uh, the system should be ensuring that only guilty people uh, go to prison or or go to jail uh, or get the death penalty. And uh, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. And the same kind of problems that lead to that uh, often lead to a lot of other problems uh, with the way people are treated in the system.
2: I just want to add that the. You know, the, the right to counsel again, the Supreme Court has said this is a fundamental right. So there's a famous famous case, Gideon v. Wainwright from 1963, and a line of cases in the 60s and early 70s, which said that if you're facing as a, any loss, a potential loss of liberty, you have the right to a lawyer. Uh, but this has not been enforced. There, there are two problems. One is this is an unfounded mandate, right? So states and counties and cities were given the responsibility to provide lawyers. And then the Supreme Court, by the 1980s, the Supreme Court was already considerably more conservative, had to decide the question of what did it mean to have an effective lawyer? What was sufficient uh, representation? And the Supreme Court established a test that was very difficult for uh, defendants to meet if they're trying to make a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. Essentially, they said, you have to prove that you your lawyer performed badly and lawyers are presumed to have performed uh, capably. And then you have to prove that if you had had a better lawyer, um, the outcome of the case would have been different, which is an extreme, it's extremely hard to prove a a hypothetical like that. So this is the case where the Supreme Court in principle said everyone has the right to a lawyer, but has allowed, uh, this, this situation to endure. You know, the Supreme Court seems to be very, um, very determined to uphold certain rights, notably the, uh, you know, the right to bear arms and, uh, and construed a very peculiar way the right to religious freedom, <laughs> but they do not seem very concerned with was the rights of dependence in criminal trials.
1: And so, uh, politicians often sort of take up this language of being tough on crime to win election. This is sort of a nebulous concept uh, a lot of times. Uh, I, I am just wondering, what, what role does this sort of language have on how mm-hmm. sort of the public views the criminal legal system? And what sort of obstacles does this erect towards a fairer system as well?
0: Well, unfortunately, it results in a view that, you know, everybody out there is guilty and we ought to lock them up and throw away the key. Uh, and very often, it's much more nuanced. Uh, it's much more difficult than that. Uh, some people accused of crimes aren't guilty of anything. Uh, and so the system has to work. They have to receive a competent lawyer if they're going to uh, traverse the legal system and, and come out with a reliable result. Uh, they have to have a jury that fairly represents the community, uh, not a jury from which uh, people of color have been excluded. Uh, and we could go on uh, uh, down the list. Uh, but unfortunately, and one of the most disturbing things, which we devote pretty much a chapter to, is this tough on crime and judicial elections. Uh, the people who really want to control the judiciary are the people with all the money, uh, chamber commerce, businesses, and so forth. But Uh, That doesn't work very well in judicial elections. So they put a lot of money into it, but then attack uh, the judge saying the judge voted in one case, maybe to reverse a death case. Uh, And they don't talk about the legal issue in the case. They just talk about the crime and how terrible the crime was uh, and say that, you know, this judge is such a bleeding heart uh, that she uh, voted to overturn the death sentence. It's not a, a thoughtful way to analyze what's going on, but it often has resulted in people being voted off the state courts. We've seen that over and over again. We saw in California in the 90s, three justices uh, voted off the state Supreme Court. Uh, We've seen in other states people voted off appellate courts, but also voted off trial courts uh, because they were, quote, soft on crime. Uh, Unfortunately, what that leaves you with is a lot of judges who have to make a decision Do I want to sign my own political death warrant uh, by ruling correctly in this case, or do I want to uh, maybe not do that because I need to get reelected? And unfortunately, we see a a lot of compromise. One other uh, sad aspect to this is in Houston. Uh, We see people run for judge. Uh, The lawyers contribute a lot of money to their campaign. Once the person gets elected judge, then... Uh, that judge appoints those lawyers to handle cases, uh, often capital cases, often cases the lawyers are not competent in handling, uh, and then rewards those lawyers, of paying them very generously. Uh, it's a political patronage uh, system. It's not a system of providing people with capable lawyers to represent uh, poor people accused of crime. It's, a, uh, it's perpetuating an elected judiciary and providing money Uh, for the judges. So uh, it's a corrupting influence uh, that we see in judicial elections. We see in other kind of elections as well. Uh, But it's uh, had a very uh, negative impact uh, on the criminal courts. And so is the answer that you all see to this
1: just sort of getting money out of uh, sort of the criminal courts as well? Or is there something
2: larger that sort of needs to be done to affect this? Well, I think getting money out of politics would certainly help a lot. Um, That's uh, you know, all the evidence is that the trend is moving in the opposite direction, <laughs> the right direction. So there are some states that don't elect judges, like uh, like Massachusetts, where I live. The general model that's followed in those states is that you have a commission that is at least on its face bipartisan and composed of experts, so drawn from various uh, uh, attorneys' organizations, uh, perhaps some nominated by by legislators. And this commission will make recommendations about who should be appointed as a judge. And uh, then the governor makes the actual nominations based on that. And then uh, and then they serve for a term of a long term, maybe 15 years, and they are renewed, assuming that they have uh, met, basically fulfilled, fulfilled the professional obligations. So in a number of places that do this, uh, Saturday, Justice Saturday O'Connor uh, campaigned after she left the Supreme Court. This was her big issue she campaigned for it um you know unfortunately i think that uh the people the say you know the people who are able to buy judicial elections like the system just the way it is so this is a this is a difficult change to push through on an issue that many people are not aware of um you know i just thought of a wonderful quotation we have in in the book uh, i it i forget who made it but that person said, at some point, basically, um, people realize that it's a lot cheaper to buy a supreme court justice, state supreme court justice, than to buy an entire legislature or to buy a governor, <laughs> and that's what they decided to invest in, and uh, so uh, So that's the problem we have. I'll also add, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think district attorneys are elected almost everywhere in this country. And as a result, you have in most places you have prosecutors who who run it on a platform of and see their job as keeping the public safe from violent criminals, uh, which means that the most powerful person in the in the criminal courts is someone who is basically uh, politically committed to locking up as many, as many people as as possible. You know, we see the opposite in a few places. There's been a recent movement of so-called progressive prosecutors who try to make decisions such as not seeking the death penalty, um, not charging certain minor coins, and so on. I think that's a promising uh, development. But at the same time, whether or not you receive justice as a person caught up in the system should, really should not depend on the prevailing ideology in the, in the jurisdiction you live in. Um, but you know, a little justice is better than enough. And so this
1: book does a really great job, I think, of Uh, realistically looking at the obstacles uh, to sort of a fairer system, Uh, but it doesn't sort of focus just all on the doom and gloom of the system as it currently exists. So you both sort of highlight uh, places uh, where things within the criminal legal system are moving in the right direction. Uh, Could you tell us uh, some examples of where and how this is actually happening and how you sort of bring that into the book?
0: Well, sure. Of course, each state, and one thing that I think many people miss is that the vast majority of criminal sentences are imposed in the states they're not imposed in federal court overwhelmingly they're imposed in state courts uh, and what we have seen and of course state supreme courts uh, can interpret their own state constitutions in ways that are different from the ways in which the united states supreme court interprets the federal constitution uh, just to give an example the washington the state of washington supreme court Uh, looked at the same kind of evidence that we talked about earlier, the evidence of racial disparities in the inflection of the death poly in Washington. And they concluded, or the justices concluded, uh, that the death poly was unconstitutional under their state constitution. So they took a different approach uh, than the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, Only recently, uh, that same court decided that uh, the problem of prosecutors striking jurors on the basis of race was so pronounced and the Supreme Court's opinion that we talked about earlier was so inadequate to deal with it uh, that they would adopt a different uh, approach. Uh, and that has had an effect on making it much more difficult for prosecutors to discriminate uh, on the basis of race. And just last year, that court decided uh, where a prosecutor is engaged in uh, misconduct based on race in uh, closing argument or jury selection or whatever that if that happens if a prosecutor makes an appeal to race it's automatic reversal there's no uh, determination of whether the error was harmless whether it would have had an impact uh, that any appeal to race is absolutely unacceptable now that's one state uh, but we've seen california uh, follow the example uh of uh washington with regard to the jury selection uh we've seen some other states uh connecticut declared the death penalty unconstitutional uh in their states at one time we had 38 states that had the death penalty now i have only 27. now two of those don't have anybody on death row uh so we we've seen uh, both a decline in the number of death sentences but also in the number of jurisdictions that have the death penalty Uh, so we do see some trends uh, but of course, uh, many of these issues are going to have to be decided state by state. There's going to be some good decisions in some places. New Jersey, just this week, uh, decided no longer would there be fees to apply for a public defender. It used to cost $150 to apply for a public defender. Ridiculous. But a lot of states have that. Uh, but again, uh, the issue's been raised. Uh, the injustice of it's been pointed out. Uh, and some changes been made. And we have to hope that those changes will be an example for other uh, places as well.
2: Yeah, I think um the one of the things that's changed in the past decade has been, I think, greater consciousness of the structural injustices in the criminal legal system. And this unfortunately, this is partly due to, um, you know, the parallel realization of injustices in policing, right? So the killing of Michael Brown and many other people since then. Uh, one of the points we make in the book is that the the same kinds of racial disparities you see in policing you also see in the courts. So right? it's all it's part of the same system. But uh, I think like the the realization that the realizations about discriminatory policing have also made open people's eyes to. Uh, racial disparities in the number of people coming into the into the system and also uh issues such as cash bail right so um problem of cash bail if you're poor um you can't you have to wait in jail until uh your trial which means you're much 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 more likely to plead, plead guilty uh, which leads to severe economic consequences down the road in terms of ability to find a house to find a job to have employment uh decades later so I think the the climate of local community activism over the past 10 years has been favorable for local solutions in certain kinds of communities um uh, places like houston philadelphia uh, and so on so you know that that is a trend that that hopefully will continue as well you know unfortunately we have certain uh countervailing trends in this country at the same time so it's difficult to say whether the outlook is uh, positive on the
1: whole. So in the introduction to this book, you both write that the problems of the criminal legal system are rooted in the problems of our society. It cannot be solved overnight. You continue in that same uh, paragraph by writing that uh, the first step is to demand a criminal legal system that lives up to its own ideals. What are these ideals and how can those who make up the criminal legal system work to uphold them?
0: Well, well, I think
2: that I would say you know there, there are there a few ideals that some of which we've mentioned already. Um, you know the Supreme Court building uh, on the top of the facade says "equal justice under law," right? So perhaps the most fundamental is that all people should be treated equally, and it should not depend on most notably what color you are or how much money you have. That's something we've talked about. Another another thing that we idealize in our uh, legal system is the adversary system. The idea that um, you know, um, each side has an attorney and the attorneys fight it out by assembling evidence and making their case in front of a jury of the defendant's peers. Uh, we have a, an adversary system today that is uh, played out on a heavily tilted uh, playing field. And so I think, you know, it, the premise of the adversary system is that it is it is fair. All right, So I think we that's an idea we need to uh, restore balance to um, the adversary system. And so those are the kinds of ideals that I think at some level, the vast majority of people agree with. Um, and one thing we wanted to show in the book is that they are not being embodied in the actual courts that we see today.
0: I would just add, the Supreme Court used to say back in the 1950s and 60s, Uh, There can be no equal justice when the kind of justice a person gets depends upon the amount of money he or she has. Uh, The point James just made is obviously in the system today, nothing matters more uh, than the amount of money a person has. And and so that's an ideal. I think most people agree with that, that there can be no equal justice if it depends upon the amount of money a person has. But everybody knows that if you have money, you get out on bail, Uh, you get a good lawyer, Uh, You get a defense, Uh, all these things that you do not get in many places in this country uh, if you're poor and if you're of color. What sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Well, I think knowledge is critical uh, in order to move forward. And one of the things we hope the book does is tell a lot of people things that maybe they didn't know before uh, about uh, prosecutorial discretion, the power of prosecutors. I don't think many people know that. Uh, people probably vaguely aware of the fact that uh, poor people are not very well represented uh, by their lawyers, but a lot of people don't know that we still have the all-white jury, uh, even in communities with very substantial populations of people of color, uh, and the cases are being decided by juries that are not at all representative of of their community. Uh, So uh, part of it is uh, getting the word out, as James said before, there's more uh, movement towards reform, a lot of it aimed at uh, police reform because of the tragedies that we've seen uh, with George Floyd and others. Uh, but one thing that we hope this helps people understand is that that doesn't end when you go into the system. Uh, when you, the, the person is arrested and then taken to jail, then the next decision is going to be made by the prosecutor. Uh, whether to charge, what to charge, uh, whether to see uh, more severe sentence like the death penalty or mandatory 20 years or whatever it may be. Uh, and then there are going to be decisions all the way through the system uh, that are going to be influenced by race, by poverty, by color, uh, all of those kinds of things. And uh, so it's very important that these efforts at reform uh, be aimed not only at uh, law enforcement, but be aimed at uh, how the system treats people, how prosecutors treat people, Uh, how the legal system in general treats people, uh, whether or not we have a a level playing field, as James just said, whether or not uh, the person accused of a crime uh, has a lawyer that has the resources, the time uh, necessary to actually provide a defense uh, to the charges that are made.
2: I just want to emphasize one point that Steve made, which is that I think a lot of people just don't know quite how bad things are. I think probably most well-educated, liberal, caring people have a sense that you know if you're black or if you're poor, things are not going to be as good as if you're white and rich. But as Steve said, I don't think many people realize how many all-white juries there still are, even in places with substantial minority populations. I don't think people reason, realize how many people are in in jail or prison simply because they are they are poor. Um, that including so first of all people who can make bail and then secondly uh people who have been locked up for failure to to pay their fines and fees. I don't think you know we we've heard a lot about mass incarceration. I don't think people realize there are there are on the order of two hundred thousand people who are serving life sentences today. Um, you know, they're not in they're not in prison for a few years. Um they're in prison for decades of their entire lives. So some of the injustices we talk about in the book, again, I, I think people's senses it can't possibly be like that in the United States in the 20th first century, and yet it is. So that's one thing we wanted to tell people.
1: Well, Steve and James, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you again for being so generous with your time.
0: Uh, so I'll ask sort of one final question to both of you. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, thank you very much again for having us and being so generous with your time and talking to us because we really appreciate it. Uh, we obviously wrote this book because we thought it was important that people know about these things. Uh, and we appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it and let people know what what we found and what we put together in this. Uh, I'm now getting ready for the next uh, year at uh, law schools, uh, Georgetown in the fall and Yale in the spring. Uh, so a lot of my time is uh, getting ready for that right now and looking forward to reengaging with my students in, in, in September.
2: And to be honest, um, I'm I'm just deciding what to do next. It might be writing another book. I'm not sure. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, I uh, I do a little work as a freelance cellist. I play in the Worcester Symphony and the New England Repertory Orchestra. So that takes a little bit of my time. But uh, yeah, I'm um, looking forward to what I work on next. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> and also, thank you very much for your time and for a really great conversation. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I wish you both the best of luck in both of those endeavors. Um, so Dr. Uh, Stephen Bray, Dr. James Kwok, uh again, thank you both for being on the show today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's a wonderful book and thank you both for writing it um, and take care.